Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space and welcome to episode 142. My guest in this episode is Dr. Rana Oddish. And Dr. Oddish is an intensive care physician. She's the director of the pulmonary hypertension program at Henry Ford Hospital. And she's the medical director for care experience in the Henry Ford Health System. She is also the author of a book called In Shock. And In Shock is one of the most important books about the profession that I practice and the world that I spend my professional time in and that we all interact with in some capacity that I've ever read. It's an extraordinary book. It is extraordinarily difficult to read. It's extraordinarily difficult to visualize. And it is an absolute triumph to have the opportunity to speak with Rana about her experience and also the book itself and where we are now and how we're moving forward. And the work that she is doing is in turns terrifying, emotional, and inspiring. She is an asset and she is amazing and it was a real gift to get to speak with her. This conversation is is very powerful. It's very powerful and it is just special to know that there are people like her out there doing the work that she is doing based upon her lived experience. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Before we get to it, just want to remind everyone, come and join me on social media. I'm very active on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. You can find the entire archive for Explore the Space, all of the 140 plus episodes at the website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. Please go through the archive and look around. The content is fantastic. The guests are tremendous. You can find the show on any podcast platform. We're on all the big ones. We're on all the places that you'd like to find your shows. Please be sure to subscribe. It really helps the show out. Make sure you don't miss out on any of that good content that's still coming. And please take the opportunity to leave us a rating and a review. It really helps the show out and it is much appreciated. This conversation is important. This conversation with Ron Oddish is outstanding. Without further ado, Ron Oddish. Ron, welcome to Explore the Space. I am, I am delighted to have you on and I will share with you I'm a little anxious and trepidatious to speak with you after reading in shock but I'm ready to step into the tension with you thank you for coming on thank you for being brave enough to step into it I appreciate it this book is this is a, a, a piece of your life and you share extraordinary drama in a unrelenting fashion that was the word that kept coming up for me. It was unrelenting. It didn't stop. Uh, can we just start with that word? When I say that word in relation to the journey that you share with your readers and that I know you are spending time sharing with the medical community at large and the community at large now, how does that word unrelenting resonate with you? I think it's a very accurate word. My lived experience of it was definitely that it was unrelenting. And, you know, ironically, um, as I was writing the book, there came a time where my editor said to me, you have to get better now. I don't care if you (laughs) didn't get better in real life. 
I can't take it anymore. You get better now. And so um, I actually saved you a few more chapters. It's funny that you say that because I had the exact same emotion and I think it would be fun for us to do fun. I think it might be revealing for us to do like a social media poll or a survey monkey. How many people who have read (laughs) in shock at some point closed the book and said, just effing get better already. Uh, if only that was how it worked. It and would have been wonderful. We had to postpone our recording because you shared with me on email, hey, Mark, I'd like to do this now. I can't. I have some things that I need to attend to and let's circle back in a few months. So we're still yeah. we're still moving through this, right? Yeah, I was at an event this weekend and they asked, you know, when I finally recovered. And I said I felt like I had had a great three weeks. So probably three weeks ago was wow. when I finally well, it you know, there's always sequela to critical illness, and I I don't think as an intensivist I ever gave that as much attention and thought and effort as I should have. So these are lessons that I'm still learning. Uh, that you know, I I fully believe that the lesson repeats as needed, and when you're experiencing something, there's something that you haven't yet fully understood to move through it. You play a lot in the book with natural phenomena. I have not yet mm-hmm. heard the op- had the opportunity to hear you speak. I've seen some clips online, but it's never quite the same. But you play a lot mm-hmm. with natural phenomena. And one of the ones that you play with the most is darkness and light. It, it, mm-hmm. that, that recurs over and over. And for me, mm-hmm. having finished the book, I'm in the darkness right now. I finished the book a couple of days ago, and it's been a struggle. It, it it kind of fucked me up, I'll be honest with you. It really affected me because yeah, it peeled away some fake walls that I had put up that our profession is okay right now. Mm. And we're not because what happens in this book to you from a physiologic perspective it's tragic and scary and we have incredible technology to save lives and all of those things are brought to bear. The road didn't have to be the way it was. There's so much fear, anxiety, anger that you express in the book that we as readers kind of express through counter-transference. I want to take your husband Mm -hmm. out for dinner as the husband of a a spouse who (laughs) who was ill. There's just so much there, but you know, yeah. there's no excuses for the stories that you tell, you know, the onion bagel, the I'm going to yeah. do surgery on you, but I haven't looked at your images yet. Yeah. The how much how much pain medication do you normally use? I don't believe you. Just tell me the truth. We, mm-hmm. we can't excuse these things. And we also know that these are not stories in isolation. We know we have a problem with how mm-hmm. we are communicating with our patients, especially when they are critically ill. Hmm. And, you know, everything that you just reflected back to me are things and experiences that I think I had been a part of before I'd gotten ill. These weren't people doing bad things. As you said, this was just the culture. It's who we are. And I was really nervous about disclosing any of that because I viewed medicine as my family. And so, you know, it's one thing within your family to sort of self-edit and criticize. 
but to go outside your family and tell the neighbors, um, it felt a little bit wrong. And um, I was worried about that. And what has really been remarkable to me is the resonance that it's had, that people have read it and said, no, this is who we are. We weren't talking about it, but I see myself in those stories and I want to be different. And the culture has normalized it. We have to deliberately create new norms. And, you know, that's a goal that we can have if it's on the table. But until we were talking about it, it was really hard to get there. So what I, what I had felt about the book was that it was more subversive. I think that oh, it actually yes. is. Yes. You know, it's actually just who we are. And we're all created. You know, it was a process of acculturation that got us here. And we can unwind that and become who we want to be. But only if we talk about it. I like that you used the word subversive because, you know, it was that, right? This is like the anarchist cookbook of medicine. <laughs> And I, I read this book right after there was this sort of, I don't know, small celebration marking the anniversary of the publication of The House of God, which is yeah. one of those books. You know, it's that sort of under the hood, what is it like to be a house officer? What is it like to be in medicine? And this was a long time ago, and the book still circulates. I'm, I'm all mm-hmm. set with House of God. I've been done with it since I read it the first time. Um, but we mm-hmm. were looking for the next one to step in to say, mm-hmm. this is mandatory content. You're going to hate this book, but you have to read it. And mm-hmm. in shock fits that role. That's, that's the book now. Has that come Thank up before? You. Are you seeing this book be put into people's hands with the instruction? You have to read this. You can't do this work. Yeah. You can't begin to prepare to do this work without reading this book. I have, and Good. it's interesting because there are two ways that it happened. One way that I'm completely floored by and gratified by where, where people who've been practicing really recognize medicine in this book and want others to read it and genuinely share it. And then there's this other thing that's happening where I feel like it's been co-opted by, um, you know, the healthcare industrial complex in some way mm-hmm. and institutions say oh we want everyone to read this but it's the institutions that do that aren't necessarily willing to do the work to change the culture but by presenting the book as their belief system I think lets them out a little bit um, lets them off the hook to the sense so it's really interesting to watch your message get transmitted in different ways and see the different ways it can have an impact and the way that that impact can actually be minimized at the same time as being spread. That's a really interesting take on it. So it's becoming a, not a building block. It's becoming, it's being used as something foundational. Yes. I I think that it will fit that role nicely I think that we will need to be sure that it's not just the Rana Audis show, right? right. Are, are you finding allies in this war? You're, you're one person. You're, you know, you're a force, but you're one person. This needs to be scalable. Yeah. And 
that was one of the beautiful things that came out of this. I think when I was writing it, I felt very much alone in my thoughts. And what I found coming through it is how many amazing organizations are out there doing this work every day. You know, I think about institutes like the Schwartz Center for Compassionate Care and the Barrel Institute and, you know, communications initiatives that are happening through Vital Talk. There is an army of people who share this vision of how healthcare needs to be better and working towards it every day. And that was opaque to me in a lot of ways until I was vulnerable and shared my experience. And then that was all revealed. One of my great mentors and friends is someone who does this work as well with his own company that I'm really fortunate to do some work with called the Physician Experience Project. And ah, I know it well. Do you really? Yeah, yeah. Steve Beeson. Steve is a yeah. good friend. We work together in San Diego. We're going to be, we, we, we see each other and we speak all the time. That's fantastic to hear. The term and the theme that I've learned the most from Steve and you used in your book, and this was one of the places where I got to the light in your book, is when you talked about assuredness. And I don't normally do this with books and when I'm talking with an author about a book, but we're going to open in shock right now. I have it in front of me. We're going to go. Wow. To page 223, it's towards the end, and you talk about being sick, really sick, deep water sick, that feeling of drowning again. You mm -hmm. play with natural phenomena, water, drowning. Mm -hmm. These themes recur a lot, and they're terrifying. But you talk about, on that page, the way he sat with you and said, you're going to be okay. What does he say? I'm going to be here all night. We won't leave your side until you can breathe. You are safe. That's not a smart person. That's not somebody who's fellowship trained, MD, all accolades, honors. That's just someone who has been properly educated on the importance of assuredness. And here's the toolbox to make sure your patients feel assured while you're doing the work to keep them breathing. That is a learned skill. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. I read that and I felt some assuredness myself. Absolutely. And I think that's a leap that we have to take in medicine and in some ways that we're still taking to unpack that idea that having a good side, bedside manner is just something that some people have and some people don't. That was a lie. These behaviors can and must be taught. They have to be reinforced. There's a roadmap that you can follow even if it's different every time there are certain signposts you can look out for and respond. Um, I think medical education really has to make this a priority. You just said this idea of having a good bedside manner can be a lie. And that's why this book messed me up so much is that's exactly what happens. These are, these are not nasty people, but they well, don't know how to interact at the bedside. They don't even come to the bedside sometimes. This idea yeah. of they have a good bedside manner. No, they don't. <laughs> no, no, we don't. And it is a yeah. learned skill set just like any other. There's a curriculum that you provide at the back, and clearly this is the work that you're doing now. Is there a switch to be flipped to help people understand we can learn pathophysiology of disease. We can, learn the we can learn the technical aspects of doing a procedure. We can learn leadership in public speaking. Appropriate conversation at the bedside is another pillar to be learned, just like all the rest. 
Absolutely. And I would argue that it's the most important pillar in many ways. You obviously need to know the medicine, but if you can't deliver the content in a way that's digestible for your patient, in a way that actually encourages co-creating a plan of care and aligns with their values, I'm not sure you're actually an effective physician. So it's it augments every skill we have. It amplifies it. It allows us to work in team-based models of care that are practice-changing. There's nothing that communication doesn't make better. I will take any stage with you that you want to support <laughs> what you just said. I would go so far mm -hmm. as to say when you are in training as a medical student, we're not going to assume that you have these skills. You have, no. to, dem you have to demonstrate this before you can advance. You have to demonstrate it at the bedside with patients and families before you can advance. There needs to be a core curriculum around this where you can demonstrate competencies or else we're going to have the onion bagel episode again. You know, and I'll go a step further because I worry a bit that when we when we attempt to create this kind of curriculum for students, sometimes it becomes a kind of checklist mentality. And what what I work to create with these communications programs is actually a fostering of the values that we need to demonstrate as physicians. So it's not as much about demonstrating empathy as it is about creating a safe space, psychologically safe, where you can connect with your patient so that you do feel compassion and you do want to act on it, but you're supported by a culture that will buoy you when it gets hard and, and give you a space to debrief and do reflective writing and think about your own emotions. I, I really want to cultivate those values and attributes rather than, you know, med students are so good at playing to the test. As soon as we make it a test, they'll, they'll win it. I will remind all of our listeners, as I do from time to time, explore the spaces entirely unscripted, but I will take the perfect segue that you gave me to go back to the book. This idea of safe spaces and how we can communicate not just with patients, but with ourselves and with each other. Page 164, I would stare at my colleagues and wonder about everything we weren't discussing. I read that and I closed the book. I needed a minute. Mm -hmm. I, I, was, I was all set for a minute when I read that. Yeah. It's not just how do we do this with patients, right? All of the, all of the episodes that you lay out and that most readers would identify as being really stark and frightening and, and frustrating – those physicians are in trouble in those moments too. Mm -hmm. And their fear and anxiety after all of this is said and done manifests in strange ways and doesn't get the proper outlet and doesn't get processed, right? You are the archetype of the physician who gets sick. That's all of, that's our, one of our biggest professional fears and they're seeing it right up front. There's no skill set for processing that. And I think that Again, there we're identifying another huge gap in the culture that we currently have versus what we want and I think probably what we project. Yeah, I agree. And that was something that revealed itself to me as I was writing the book. I didn't 
have an understanding that as I delved into my patient experience, what would become illuminated would be the provider experience, the physician experience, um, that I would see so clearly how what I experienced was a direct result of our training and how the injured people really in this story are the physician. Um, I think on some level I was aware of that, but the extent of it and the acceptance of it as normal still floors me. But you don't give safe harbor. You don't make that. There's no, there's no excuse, right? There's no place where these themes that come up over and over are excused. And if anything, I think you make them, you make the, you make them more stark and and bitter because you talk about Mm -hmm. we're at this great institution where we created the pathways for early goal directed therapy and sepsis. I got septic Mm -hmm. and no one was listening and I almost died again. Mm -hmm. The, the, the disruptive behavior. It's not like you ever give the opportunity for the physician to say, I've been working for 40 hours. I'm burned out. I'm X, I'm Y, I'm Z. No, there's no opportunity for a crutch or any sort of excuse, which makes it that much harder. Because like I said at the beginning, for me, at least all those walls, all those places, all that purchase, it does, it's not in this book. It's not here. It's not in your story. I also think those, those walls that we've put up, those excuses, we've allowed ourselves those compensations are very dysfunctional. Yeah. Um, in order to have a healthy culture, we have to look at those things and say, they don't serve us anymore. What would a more authentic way of being look like? Because this is a compensation that I made for a dysfunctional culture, and I don't want to be a part of that. When you pushed back the hardest, there was a part in the book, and I, I'll share it because it's in the book, where you kick a surgeon out. You say, Thank yeah. you. You're not operating on me. Get out. That is, I, I want to walk through that ground with you a little bit. First of all, uh, let's start with the now around that because that shook me up. Um, I've been in a place where I have almost said that to somebody and I kick myself for not. Thankfully, nothing mm-hmm. bad happened, but I wish I had asked this person to leave the room and not come back. Mm-hmm. What was that? journey like for you now when you reflect on it? Uh, you, you talk again in the book too, when your son breaks his arm, where we heal, the bone is stronger. Is that one of the places that made you stronger? You know, I've never regretted having agency. Yeah. I've always only been ashamed at the times when I didn't value my own voice. Mm-hmm. When you're a patient, I think you're so immediately robbed of your agency in every way that it becomes normal to subvert it yourself. And that moment, I can still remember exactly how I felt with that that surgeon, that this rage was really just bubbling up inside of me. And it wasn't just him in that moment. It was everything else that had ever happened and all of the times that I hadn't spoken and all of the the consequences of losing my voice. And it was just not anymore. This is where that stops. And it was liberating and terrifying at the same time. It was 
you know, I felt in the moment like I was in control, even as I was completely losing control of the situation because I was firing the only surgeon who could operate on me until the day team arrived. Um, it's like anything, you know, it's a paradox. You, you feel like you're accomplishing something and still you're losing the battle in the moment because his behavior didn't change. It didn't make him awaken to, to how he was acting. I just got labeled as a difficult patient who was irate and fired his surgeon. So although I'm very proud of that moment, it frustrates me that that's what it had to come to because we should never put patients in a situation where they feel like they have to do that. I have been on the other side of what you describe. I have been the physician who comes next and it's disheartening. Um, uh, you know, the, the family is, is sharing why they took that action, what yeah. led to it. It's really, really disheartening. So when I read that, that took me to a place. And it's, again, it's one of those things where I don't think that I have clarity around what that experience did to me and then to read it and then to have that experience over and over and over through this book because there's things that I have yeah. – over the course of my career, seen, heard about, had happen. It's really hard. <laughs> it's really, really hard. I'm sorry for that. I I hear how hard it is. And, you know, when I wrote it, I truly had the fear that these were only my feelings and only my experiences and no one else would see themselves in the pages. So as hard as it is, to see yourself, I'm grateful that it's a shared boy. Absolutely. Did you pull any punches? Are there things that you did not put in the book or the things that you, that someone suggested, nah, uh, this is a bridge too far. You may want to hold your fire on this one. So what I did was I didn't allow anyone to read it aside from a husband, my husband, <laughs> and a, a few close friends. Yeah. Um, I didn't let anyone in the, the health system read it because I was truly afraid that I'd be asked to edit or tweak or just, you know, could you leave this out? We really don't look good. I had to stand behind my truth. And so until it was bound and off to be published, I didn't share the words. And that allowed me to not be edited I left some things out. You know, I didn't talk about what it's like to to be intimate again after critical illness. There were things that felt personal to me that didn't feel like they belonged in the book. I think I left out a lot of um, a lot of the the beauty of medicine because that's not really what this book was about. There's so much that's transcendent in it and beautiful, but this was a book that had to look at what was dark. And it couldn't be all of those things. I'm glad that you took that approach. Again, it's this theme of the darkness and the light. There's plenty of books that talk about the, the great things that we do in medicine. And the fact, I would say the subtext that sort of underwrites all of this is the beauty is you're alive. You didn't die. Yeah. We, got to the, we, got, we got right to the edge of the cliff a few times. And you describe these places in such a way because – 
for you're a brilliant writer, you're an extraordinary communicator. You also have an understanding of just how close we got because you're an intensive mm-hmm. care physician. Mm-hmm. I think that's the the part that I just reminded myself of when I'm like, this is a desolate, horrible place. No, it's actually not. Rana is alive and she wrote the book yeah. and now we can learn from it. That, that That's going to have to be enough. I like that you didn't deposit these little oases because they don't need to be there. This, this sucked. And that's not what it feels like when you're in it, right? You're not, you're not sort of enamored by it. All right. illness is suffering. And I think my goal for us is just that we don't add suffering to what's already inherent suffering of illness. We have to alleviate it. So you, you know, you play with darkness and light, you play with water, you play with drowning you don't ever play with anything that leaves a sense of redemption. Um, I feel like you, you leave us with, and you use the sort of the metaphor, the ship is just being built. Are we finding redemption? Are we getting to a play? Are we moving to a different place or are we really just starting out? The book is not that old. The story is just starting to be told. If we look at, you know, what, what I think probably what left me so so kind of despondent when I finished the book is I didn't feel any sense of closure or redemption. I went to work the next day. Mm. Um, yeah. are, where are we in finding that healing after going through this and all of us reading this and being like, wow, this is where we are? I do have hope in the sense that if I think back to my training – and where we were, you know, in the late 90s versus now, there are huge shifts that are happening in our understanding of what it means to create psychologically safe spaces in medicine, what it means to need to debrief, what a secondary victim of trauma is. Our language is changing to reflect our understanding. And you, you see that, I think, in hospitals now. There are things that were said 20 years ago, 10 years ago, that you would never say now. Um, and that's all wonderful. Where I think we, we're struggling is that medicine's changing in a negative direction is at the same time as these positive changes are happening. So we're really gaining ground on understanding our community and, and supporting each other and advocacy and, you know, the Me Too and medicine movement. Everything's really coming together. And yet, our business of medicine is taking away autonomy from physicians. We have excessive work burdens that are crushing at times. People are documenting, you know, after hours, the EHR, which was supposed to save us with this beautiful artificial intelligence interface, has become just a mechanism of torture for a lot of people, Um, not to be too dramatic. And so these things are happening in parallel. (laughs) Um, And that's why I think we don't feel like we're gaining ground because we're, we're running up a mountain and the mountain's slope is changing as we're doing it. So it always feels like an uphill battle. I'm curious, what sort of comparisons have you gotten for In Shock? Have people ever said, this reminds me of this book, this story, this movie? Has that ever come up? Because I, I, I know what, I know which book it reminds me of 
without 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 a minute's hesitation. But does that come up? Do people say, "Wow, this really took me to this place when I read X book"? What people often tell me is what personal experience they've had that they saw in the book, less okay. that it related to another book for them, um, but that they saw themselves in this moment. I think the place where. So I'll share the book that I that it reminded me of was Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, where it's just this. Oh, I haven't read that. It's just this. <laughs> it's an unrelenting journey through darkness, and it mm. keeps getting worse. And you're you're not ready for the next thing, and the next thing happens. The language is soaring and beautiful. The you you're you're right there on on the adventure, and it's just awful. And that's what happened with me when I read your book of, you know, closing the book. Going, Are you kidding? This really, you're, you're, we're not done yet. You've got to be joking. And then picking it up and continuing to read it. The, the shared, ex- yeah, it's, it's, it's stark and it's horrifying and it's brilliant in that respect because it doesn't try to do anything else. It just, it's this journey and it's rough. I felt so strongly that, my illness had sort of sucked me into this tornado, hurricane, whatever, and just dragged me through these experiences and then, you know, sort of ejected me out the other side to figure out who I was. And one of my goals in writing the book was really to make the reader feel a sense of that, that they were experiencing all of this alongside me as viscerally as I could make them experience it. So that they would come to the same conclusions that I came to. I never wanted to be prescriptive. I never wanted to feel as if I thought I had the answers because I don't. I just wanted the transformation that comes with illness to be something that everyone could be a part of. That idea of the transformation of illness as something we can all be a part of. I think that that will underscore phase two, phase three, phase four of what you do and what we all try to do together, because that feels more yeah. aspirational. That feels like we can move up and out. And yeah. I that that's that imbues sort of a sense of excitement. Good. Out of the darkness. That's right. I, I also know in juxtaposition from following you on social media that you find tremendous joy in life and you're smiling and you're with your friends and you're with your family. Is your sense of joy, happiness, laughter, humor, enjoyment, is it different? Is it amplified? We all have this romantic view that, you know, everything tastes a little sweeter. What has been that experience for you coming through this, writing the book, you know, getting out on stages and talking about this? Is the light brighter? It's almost hard to even explain how different it feels to me. I... I very much after that first critical illness remember feeling, you know, if I could live for another year, that would be incredible. And obviously I've lived 11 years from, from then. So I've had all of this time that I never felt entitled to and certainly was not in the cards if things had played out the way that I thought they would have. And so you know, I remember coming home from the hospital and seeing like a flower and just being like, it's just so amazing that that even exists. Like that's <laughs> enough for me that we have this beauty 
And I've kind of kept that sense of wonder and awe about everything. Everything's remarkable. The fact that I have a child, you know, who mansplains things to me because he thinks he knows everything is, is amazing. Um, it's everything's so unexpected that I do truly feel grateful and you know, when I share my life now, I'm really sharing it from a vantage point of incredible gratitude. I think that comes out in how you connect. That's been my first impressions of you from interacting on social media. And maybe that's why the book was so jarring. Because what you're just describing is what populates the pictures you put on Instagram, the the shares that you put out on on Twitter, uh, and I, and so maybe that juxtaposition is what made the book feel like so, stark. Uh, so yeah, so stark exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's what I had to go through to get here. You know, it yeah. was it was a period of time and a sense of learning about of what could be. Has your husband? sat down and written his handbook for spouses of a critically ill husband, wife, partner. That's funny. Um, I'll tell you a, a funny story about that. So, you know, as I mentioned, I was really protective of the book when I was writing. I didn't want anyone else's story to infiltrate it. And so even with him, I didn't let him read it. Until I, I got to a point where I felt like I could use a bit of his perspective. And because he's an attorney, he gave it back to me with grammar edit and punctuation edit. <laughs> and I got really mad. And I banned him from reading it. And, you know, he tried to explain himself. He said, it's just really hard to read with all these mistakes. And if you fix it, I'll be able to focus on the content. And I was like, out, out, out. <laughs> So then when, when I wrote the chapter where our son is born, I felt really emotional about it. And I decided to give him another chance with all these caveats that I swear to God, if he put pen to the paper, I would kill him. And he came back to me with tears in his eyes. And he said, I never knew I did a good job. And I was wow. like, oh, my God, that's heartbreaking. I can't believe this is how you're finding out that you did a good job. Of course you did a good job. Like, you kept me alive. And it it showed me how little we value the role of, like, the caregiver, the spouse, the partner. I I was heartbroken. But because life is always dark and funny at the same time, he went on to say, in fact, I look so good that if you ever do die, women are going to want to date me. <laughs> <laughs> so I will literally be in rooms where I'm addressing a thousand people now and make everyone vow never to date him because <laughs> I am going to outlive him out of spite. That's fantastic. I will ask you to tell Randy from me as a physician and as the husband of a wife who was ill, he did a really good job. He did a really good job. I will tell him that. That is really funny. Marriage. It's a, it's a weird crucible to be in. You know, when you take your, when you take your marriage vows and you talk about in sickness and in health, 
the in sickness part, it's a, that is a crucible of note and yeah. it's a challenging path to walk. Have you guys debriefed around that? Have you had an opportunity to talk about how it informs your relationship now? How much of a oh, part of yeah. your relationship now is it? He, he will tell you if I have a thought that I over communicate. So there's not a thought that goes through my head that I don't share. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting, you know, the fights in our house are like, I feel like you loved me better when I was sick. It, it's interesting how illness illuminates that, that emotion and devotion. And there have been times where I've been well, where our relationship doesn't feel as strong. And so that's something that we talk a lot about. Um, it, I've had enough intermittent illnesses along the way to keep us going. So I'm not worried, but it's a challenge, you know, to, to plan for a life and then have it be rerouted in such a dramatic way. And he's been amazingly compliant. So I use that word ironically. Yeah. Is that, is that another book that you would write? Because I think that's an interesting one, this idea of marriage relationships and the intersection of critical illness and how it changes the, the life that you had envisioned or the life you were working to create. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Thanks for the idea. If you, if you want to someone to write a chapter, I'll write one. That sounds brilliant. All right. It's a, it's a weird road. Collaboration. Yeah. It is it, a weird road. It's a really weird road. You know, my wife came on the show a couple of years ago to talk about her, road that she walked with breast cancer and she was diagnosed at the age of 30. We had just gotten married, you know, all the aspirations and hopes and dreams and whatnot. And, you know, you just make up a 90 degree turn. It's really weird. I don't have a better word for it. It's really weird. It's really uh, unsettling and we're still married and we're happy. And like you said, though, the ways we argue and the things we fight about are really different than (laughs) (laughs) what they were back in the day. Yep. Where Where is happiness for you right now? Where are the things that, you know, give you rocket fuel to keep doing this work? Because you are out there, man. You keep a high tempo. Your your Twitter feed is populated with all the big crowds you get in front of. I can only imagine how high of a demand you're in to be in front of large groups, small groups, individuals. What What's sustaining you? Know, I pack my life full of life. I think that's that's one thing that came out of my illness is I use all the available space to live. And, um, you know, the, the travel and the speaking, I, I really enjoy connecting with people. I love people. I love hearing stories. I love the community that we're building. When I, I need to refuel. Um, although I do think I'm probably an extrovert, I still need time to refuel and what I do is a lot of yoga I paint because if I'm struggling with something that I don't have another outlet for I can always paint and I don't need words it just sort of takes shape um I love cooking so at the end of every day I I go right for the kitchen and just cook um I have what's a garden your, what's your specialty what's the happy. number one thing that comes out of your kitchen oh my goodness um, probably 
my Moroccan chicken. Oh, like give me it. I want. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Pretty good. Yeah. Put a picture of it on uh, Instagram next time you make it. I will. Absolutely. What kind of a role does clinical medicine play for you now? Clinical medicine is everything in some ways. Uh, it gives me a chance to redeem all of these thoughts that I've had in real time to to see if all these theories that I have about connection and and community and creating space for my patients actually work. You know, it's like a little test lab for all of my my theories. And what I've found to be so wonderful is the deeper in that I go, the more I connect and the more I open those channels that I'm so filled by it. Um, There are challenges always. I have the same struggles as everyone does with, you know, the workload and the documentation and the, the constant feeling that my time is not enough and that there's mission conflict. There are always things that seem more urgent that need to be done, but aren't as important. And how do I dedicate my time? So I practice a lot of, attempt to practice a lot of mindfulness and just be present and and not get too dragged into that narrative of, of stress and disaster. So it's it's like a little lab for my emotions and my experiences. And hopefully I'm affecting positive change for my patients as I do that. I think it's great that you're still doing it and that you've turned it into something different so that it becomes, I love this mm-hmm. idea of it being a lab. Because from labs come great discoveries and you're also generating a really nice family tree of people that you're training and people that you're working with and people that you'll come in contact with that can then take some of these lessons out as well. There's a lot of them. And so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that the clinical side, despite all of the travails that you described, is still a place of meaning, of value, and of, of, of interest it was tempting at one point to say I can't go back, that it would be too hard. And I truly just felt like my illness had taken so much away from me. I was not going to give up that issue. That was something I was going to reclaim and reshape it in the image of what I thought it could be. And I've been just focused on that from that first day back. I like the idea of reclamation and I'm going to take that one as helping me feel better about the book and where we all are, because that's what we're going to do. We have to reclaim our profession. I've got a long career ahead of me. So do you. So do all of us that are kind of in the game right now. And like you said at the beginning, we have the opportunity to reclaim and reshape and we got to do it. Agreed. How do people find you as they hear this or when they hear you speak or something like this, the book is in shock. It's widely available, downloadable purchase, all those good things. How else do people find you? I'm literally all over the internet. It's not hard. I also live in Northville. So if you just want to stop by, I will see you. <laughs> if you post a picture of Moroccan chicken on Instagram, I think we're going to have to stop by. <laughs> I think we're going to come over. We'll post links to your Twitter feed and your Instagram feed. We'll have a link to the book in the show notes. Thank you for talking with me. I I needed this. And I'm sure a lot of people come to you and need from you. And I appreciate how much you are able to give 
you've given us a real gift with this book. You've given us a real opportunity with sharing your story and now being rocket fuel for change. And so for all of that, I really am grateful to you. Thank you. I enjoyed this so much. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.